Moses announces to his people that at 120 years old, he is no longer able to lead them. This is a slight bending of the narratives in the books of Exodus and Numbers, where Moses has his access keys to the promised land taken away for him by God, for suggesting that it was he and not God who made water gush from a dry rock face. The old leader acknowledges that God has told him that he will not be accompanying the Israelites across the river and presents Joshua to the people as their new commander-in-chief. Moses assures his listeners that God will go ahead to clear a path for them, destroying enemy nations like he did to the kingdoms belonging to Sihon and Og. The Israelites are to feel emboldened by the presence of God, Moses tells them, and they should be sure to carry out all his orders, confident that he will never stop fighting for them. Moses then brings Joshua alongside him onto whatever podium, stage or rock they are standing on and orders him to be strong and filled with courage. After all, his role is to accompany his people into an unknown world and divide the land up among them all. God will go ahead of him, Moses promises. He will remain with him and will never leave him, and so there is no reason for him to be afraid or disheartened. These are encouraging words, given the almighty task ahead of Joshua. The people have been waiting 40 years for this moment, and everything hinges on one man's ability to rely on God and not himself to ensure that Canaan is properly conquered. Moses may be old, but there still appears to be plenty of life left in him. He's fully in control of his faculties, but in the Bible, God gets what God wants, and what God wants is a new leader to establish his new nation in their new land. Despite his health, time has run out for the man who has dominated the Bible's last four books. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible Season 5 Finale, Poison Wine. So here we are, finally. We've reached the end of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, also known in Jewish circles as the Torah. If you've only just joined us, you may want to whiz back to the beginning and binge listen to episodes 1 to 50. You'll find that this is very much the Bible light. No one gets told what to do and there are no wagging fingers. Just me taking you, sometimes quite enthusiastically, on a guided tour through the world's most famous book. So come on, strap yourselves in. We're at the border of the Promised Land and the Israelites are about to get a new Commander-in-Chief. of Joshua to lead Israel is an unsurprising one. One of the last men to have left Egypt still alive, he is a shining example of how an Israelite should behave. He is loyal to Moses, brave and morally upstanding. He has helped win a victory over Amalek, guarded the tent of meeting and returned from a recon sortie into Canaan full of confidence in an Israelite victory, unlike most of his fellow spies. Joshua is possibly as young as 68 when he becomes Israel's leader, but given that he and Caleb are the only two from their generation to enter Canaan, they are still around 20 years older than the next oldest Israelites. Moses knows how important following God's rules is to the future success of the settlement, and once he has written all these laws down, he hands them to a group that includes Israel's tribal leaders as well as the priests who are responsible for the Ark of the Covenant. This is the holy box in which the original stone tablets inscribed with the laws are kept. 
Moses describes the priests as the ones who carry the ark, but readers of the book of Numbers will know that it is the men from the Kohath clan of the tribe of Levi who do the actual heavy lifting. Moses then orders the people to recite the laws every seven years during the year of Jubilees at the Festival of Tabernacles. This guarantees a large crowd, giving the words maximum opportunity to be heard. The location must be at Israel's designated worship site. Remember, at this time, the people have no idea where this will be and assume that God will point them to it when the time is right. In fact, it takes several centuries and a number of location changes before this temple finds a permanent home. The Israelites are reminded of the purpose behind this law-giving. Many of them were too young last time or only joined Israel from another country more recently. In an age before internet search or even libraries, oral retellings are the only way of sharing information. The hope among Israel's leadership must be that those hearing Moses' words today will be present in Canaan when they are read out again by Joshua and that they will remember enough of them for them and their children to stick to them. At the very least, those who were too young, not yet born or not in the country when the laws were shared at Mount Sinai, will now know the rules of the land which they are about to inhabit. With that, Moses' address to the Israelites ends and the narrative takes over as readers are told how God summons Moses and Joshua to the tabernacle to make Joshua's leadership official. Once the men are at the holy tent, God shares two items of bad news. One, they know already. He may be in rude good health, but Moses is about to die. The second is more of a bombshell. Despite everything he has warned the people about, they will turn away from God and God will turn away from them. Speaking through the pillar of cloud, God describes how Israel will go on to prostitute itself with local Canaanite gods, turning away from him and breaking the promises they made to him. As a result, God will remove himself from their presence, something the Bible describes as hiding his face from them. Disaster and calamity will rain down on them and they will know that this has all come about because their relationship with God has been severed. It now appears that the entirety of Moses' three sermons at Beth Peor has been sung, as God now tells Israel's leader to write his song down and to make the people sing it, highlighting again the importance of oral tradition in an age where people are largely illiterate. The law is a double-edged sword for the Israelites, though. Now they know it well, God can use it as his witness against them when they fall out of line and turn to other gods. Disaster would inevitably befall Israel, God tells Moses and Joshua. He can see it happening even before they set foot in the promised land. When catastrophe strikes, the law song will remind the Israelites why these calamities have happened, the men are told. God appears to know his people, which is how he can be confident that all will eventually go south. And clearly keen not to be the one who sinks the ship, Moses then follows the divine order and puts pen to paper. According to Deuteronomy, God then urges Joshua to be courageous and strong. He will need both these attributes and more to oversee the whole-scale slaughter of people without flinching or holding back. Echoing Moses' words earlier, God assures him that he will lead his people successfully into Canaan. 
Moses busies himself with writing down God's rules, and when he is finished, he gives the book to the Kohathite Levites to place next to the Ark as a kind of silent witness to their future infractions. The book of the law, as it is known, is separate from the tablets on which the Ten Commandments are inscribed. These tablets are believed to have been placed inside the Ark, while the book is to be kept alongside it. The book no doubt takes the form of a scroll, and might be the document discovered centuries later by Judah's saintly king Josiah, whose story is told in the second book of Kings. Moses reminds the men that the laws will convict them as they are willful and stubborn. It's unclear who he is directing the message to, as it seems unfair to unload onto one branch of Levites who appear no better or worse than any other group within Israel. The suggestion then is that Moses' you refers to the whole nation. Moses knows this obstinacy and rebellion from first-hand experience and wonders how much more his people will misbehave after he is dead. An exclamation mark in the original text highlights his humorous exasperation at the thought and even adds a hint of affection for the people who he has been locking horns with like Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd for the past 40 years. Moses then asks Joshua to gather the tribal elders and other officials so that his next words can be spoken in their hearing. For the second time, he names the skies and the land as witnesses that will give evidence against the people. He lets it be known that he is confident that Israel will fall into a moral abyss after his death and that God's anger will visit them to punish them for the idols which they will have built with their own treacherous hands. One of the last tasks given to Moses by God is to write down the lyrics to a song and then sing it to his captive audience so that they remember it forever. The song performed by Moses to Israel's tribal chiefs in which he addresses to the earth and the sky contains no surprises. God is great, a faithful rock whose teaching falls like nourishing rain and dew. His works are perfect and all his ways are just, Moses sings. Meanwhile, the people are corrupt, warped and crooked. They are so stupid that they don't realise that God protected them in the wilderness and fed and nourished them, let alone created them. The very least these goons should do is appreciate God, not turn their backs on him. Moses describes how in the days of old God allocated land to all nations, an allusion to the original 70 kingdoms and countries believed by the Old Testament ancients to have settled the earth. Yet in the song, Israel was seen as God's personal possession. Moses tells of how God found Jacob in an arid country and guarded him like an eagle, one man and one God, feeding him and nourishing him with the choicest foods in what appears to be a mirror of the creation. The miraculous provision is highlighted by Moses' words. The honey comes from the rock and the olive oil from the flinty crag, not places associated with abundant harvests. It was a time of plenty, Moses sings. They enjoyed fattened lambs, choice rams and the foaming blood of the grape. But Israel became fat and haughty as a result. Complacent and full of food, its people abandoned the God who made them. They made him jealous with their sacrifices to foreign gods and forgot all about him. It is then that a furious God turned his back on his people with disastrous results. For making him jealous, he vows to make them jealous, suggesting that the Gentile nations in which they have become immersed will turn to God in their place, a prediction which becomes reality in the New Testament. God will heap calamities upon them, Moses sings. His fire will reach the realm of the dead beneath the earth and set the roots of the mountains ablaze. 
arrows, wasting famine and pestilence will be God's weapons of choice to which he will add the fangs of wild beasts, the venom of snakes and the blades of swords which will cut down their children. Terror will reign, Moses promises. Israel's people will perish and their name will be erased from human memory. At this point, according to the song, God will intervene, if only to prevent Israel's crowing neighbours from claiming the victory for themselves. Moses describes his people as senseless. How can they not see that their defeat by one or two soldiers must be the work of God? Their rock is not like our rock, he sings. In fantastically lurid language, he describes the venomous wine from the vineyards of Sodom, sealed in God's vaults waiting for the opposite time to serve it. Vengeance is all his, he tells his renegade people, and he will repay their enemies for what they have done. Their feet will slip and their day of disaster is near, he says. Their doom rushes upon them. On that day, God will vindicate his weakened people, Moses assures his audience. He will prove himself more real than fake idols, inviting these effigies of wood and stone who have been on the receiving end of lavish food and drink sacrifices from Israel's people to now rise up and help them. But he knows already that they cannot do this. There is no God but me, God rages through Moses. I put to death and I bring to life. Only God can heal what God has wounded, Israel's elders are told. God is the only God. He is the supreme deity and he will take revenge on all his adversaries, repaying hate with hate. His arrows will be drunk with blood and his sword will devour flesh. God will avenge, Moses says, and the blood of his enemies will be used to wash away the wickedness of Israel. These are not just words he tells his audience once the singing is over. This is life. They should teach them to their children, he says. These are the keys to success and happiness in the land God has promised them, and they lose them at their peril. One particular lyric from Moses' song suggests that God wants people to step back and let him take the wheel. Many have found themselves in a situation where they have been wronged and feel the need to exact revenge quickly and emphatically. But in his song, Moses reiterates that revenge is for God to take care of. His exact words are, vengeance is mine. These right leaders nodding along to the performance are being asked to do the near impossible, to resist taking matters into their own hands and to allow God to administer whatever punishment he sees fit to someone who might have really hurt them or their family. There is no explanation given to justify this rule, but a couple of reasons for this are possible. The first is that the victim may be so angry or distraught that they exact too much revenge. Better to let God take appropriate action than make yourself the villain for taking more than an eye for an eye, more than a tooth for a tooth. Nowhere is it written that a believer should be a pushover. Crimes should be reported, but it is the exacting of personal justice that is frowned upon. The Bible allows people to have their case heard before a judge, and it is in the courts that formal justice is dispensed, which is another reason why readers are told not to take matters into their own hands. Outside of court, God may or may not punish the wrongdoer, but there are no guarantees, and many people have to suffer the almost unbearable affront of watching a perpetrator thrive. It's worth remembering that the Bible sees no human aside from Jesus as truly blameless, and that God sees all sin as equal in weight. 
This means that in urging him to punish the person who stole her husband, a believer might open herself up to punishment for an array of albeit smaller crimes that God may be equally unhappy about. Once the show is over, Moses has one final task before he hands his staff to Joshua. Deuteronomy describes how Moses is sent up Mount Nebo, a mountain that straddles the border of Canaan, from which he can enjoy a glimpse of the promised land. Here, he will die, God tells him, reminding him of the indiscretion back in the desert where he and his brother Aaron offended God in front of their fellow Israelites. As punishment, Moses will only see his people's future homeland from a distance. Before beginning his final ascent, Moses blesses his people. Just as Jacob blessed his twelve sons over four centuries earlier, Israel's leader takes each of the tribes descended from these twelve men in turn and shares their future with them. He begins by announcing how God came from Mount Sinai, rising like the morning sun and accompanied by thousands of angels, possibly whom Moses believed he saw during his time on top of the mountain. These angels bow down before God, the Israelites are told, and they are in possession of the same laws which he has just shared with everyone here. This has understandably caused confusion amongst believers, as this is the first readers of the Bible are told of a myriad of angels who accompany God. Where are these angels in the books of Exodus and Leviticus, they ask? The answer might be that by the time the book of Deuteronomy is written, Jewish belief that angels ministered during the giving of the law on Mount Sinai has become gospel, despite there being no record of it in any of the Bible's other books. Moses shares his confidence that God loves his people, who he refers to as holy ones who sit in God's hand, bow down at his feet and wait for him to tell them what to do. The narrative voice then changes as someone else appears to be now writing about Moses and describes the laws which he shared with his people and how he led the Israelites like a king. It is at this point that the blessings begin. Some tribes are only given a single line, while others such as Levi and Joseph have a whole paragraph of blessing bestowed upon them. Reuben and Dan receive the shortest blessings. Moses wants Reuben's tribe not to die out and to increase in number, while Dan is simply referred to as a lion's cub springing out of Bashan, suggesting that the Danites are fearless and bold. Judah is surprisingly neglected given that this is the tribe that will give birth to both David and Jesus. Moses requests that Judah's cries will be heard and that God will help its people fight against their enemies. Levi is seen as faithful. He holds the access codes to the Urim and Thummim, the mysterious divining tools used by priests to decide the will of God. But the tribe is reminded about the episode at Meribah that led to Aaron's, and now Moses, death. Also acknowledged is the way Levi behaved after the incident with the golden calf at Mount Sinai. The tribe's willingness to cut down family members in the purge that followed is seen as honouring God. Levi enjoys one of the longest blessings, possibly because this is Moses' own tribe, and he is commended for looking after the spiritual well-being of his people, teaching them the law and administering at the tabernacle. Moses asks that God helps the Levites in their work, that he take pleasure in what they do for him, and that any enemies of this tribe be eliminated. Moses asks God to protect Benjamin, 
As the one God loves rests between his shoulders, a possible reference to the Jerusalem temple which will be built in Benjamin's territory centuries later. Joseph is described as a prince among his brothers, and Moses prays that the land allotted to his sons Manasseh and Ephraim will be blessed with all the best things which the earth can provide. In flowery and effusive language, Moses hopes that the choicest gifts of the ancient mountains and the fruitfulness of the everlasting hills are Joseph's and his descendants to enjoy. Joseph is majestic like a bull, Moses says, and with his horns his tens of thousands of descendants will gore all the nations of the earth. Zebulun and Issachar are bundled together and told they will offer righteous sacrifices on mountains and feast on what they find in the sea and under the sand. Zebulun's tribal land eventually borders the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus' disciples not only catch abundant fish, but also become fishers of men, leading some to believe that the feasts from the sea might refer to these men. Anyone who increases Gad's already premium territory will be blessed as he was faithful to God, Moses says, and Gad is described as guarding his land like a lion, conscious that he has the best real estate in Israel. Naphtali is brimful of God's blessing and is set to inherit more land to the south. Asher is the most favoured brother Moses announces and should bathe his feet in oil. His gates will be iron and bronze and he will remain strong his whole life. Once the individual tribes have been name-checked, Moses assures them that there is no one like God who will ride majestically on the clouds to help them. This God lives forever and they can take eternal refuge under his everlasting arms. Not only that, he will drive out all of Israel's enemies, allowing them to live safely in a land of grain and new wine. Moses marvels at this people, who he only properly joined quite late in years, having led a life of Egyptian privilege in a royal palace. He even has an Egyptian name. He asks, who is like them? Who else are a people set aside for and rescued by God himself, who will act like a shield and a sword for them as they move effortlessly through their enemies on their way to their conquest and settlement of Canaan? The Israelites are hovering on the edge of the land of Canaan. Moses has shared the laws with them one last time, and the work of their great leader is complete. Confident that the people are now absolutely sure of how God expects them to behave when they finally arrive in the land promised to the patriarchal ancients Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Moses begins his ascent of Mount Nebo. Here he surveys the fertile country that his people will soon call home. However, the narrative is clearly written some time after the land has been settled. The writer describes the territory in terms of the tribes which, at the time he is writing, have already established themselves there. Jericho sits relatively central on Israel's north-south axis, giving Moses a good view of Canaan. The land he can see stretches from Gilead to Dan, which makes little sense to modern readers, as Gilead is somewhere east of the Jordan, while Dan could be any number of towns or even the tribal settlement to the south of the country. Moses can see all of Naphtali, one of the most northerly tribes. He can see Ephraim and Manasseh, which occupy a vast central belt, as well as Judah to the south, stretching away to the Mediterranean Sea. Moses can also see the Negev, where his ancestors Abraham and Isaac both spent time as economic migrants, as well as the valley where Jericho, the city of palms, is situated. 
He can even see Zohar, the city near the Dead Sea noted in the book of Genesis for its small size and which Lot and his family flee to in a frantic bid to escape the destruction of Sodom. According to the book, God tells Moses that this is the wonderland that he has been referring to and which he promised Abraham and the others on oath. It is a look but don't touch, however, as Moses is reminded yet again that he will not be crossing over. There is no reprieve for the old man and despite changing God's mind and sparing the nation of Israel on a number of occasions, Moses makes no attempt to save his own life. By now, Moses is 120 years old and is still in robust health with perfect eyesight, suggesting that God ends his life deliberately because his work is complete. In a book with precious little action, Moses' death is a pretty epic finale and the Israelites' leader is so special to God that he buries him himself at a location as yet still unknown. All readers are told is that it is in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Such is the distress in the camp that Moses is mourned for 30 days as the Israelites seem genuinely distraught that he is no longer in charge. Moses has already laid hands on Joshua and has passed the leadership baton to him and the book of Deuteronomy describes Joshua as being filled with a spirit of wisdom once Moses dies. For this reason, the people listen to him and do what he tells them, a willing compliance which must make the newly buried Moses roll in his grave. Readers are told that there has never been another prophet in Israel who God spoke to face to face or who performed the kind of miracles that confronted the most powerful king in the world, Egypt's Pharaoh. The writer of Deuteronomy adds how confident he is that no one has demonstrated the might of God so powerfully and publicly in full sight of the whole of Israel as Moses and inks in his final full stop. It is the end of an era for the Israelites. The man who was raised a prince in Pharaoh's palace has led the sons and daughters of slaves to a land of abundance that is filled with infinite possibility, and it is theirs to capitalise on or throw away completely. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook by searching Holy Bible Podcast. That's W-H-O-L-L-Y, Holy, B-U-Y-A-B-L-E, Bible. And if you like what you're hearing, why not give us a five-star review wherever you're listening? Thank you. Thank you.